Um, here's what we're going to do right now is we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about what we started last week. Um, if you have been here normally on Sunday mornings, we recently, a few months ago, started a series going through the book of Revelation. Uh, we shifted gears a little bit last week, and we're going to continue sort of in that theme again this week. And then next week, we're going to get back into the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at the very last church of the seven churches that we've been looking at on Sunday mornings um, next week. And then after that, we're going to get into some really awesome stuff in the book of Revelation. That's when the book gets really interesting. It kind of moves its scene into heaven. A lot of other great things that are going to be happening, which we're really excited about. So if... Uh, you know, be aware of that as we kind of move into that. But today, we're going to finish up this little series that we started last week. Really has to do with the incarnation. We looked last week at this whole idea of the incarnation. The incarnation basically comes from a Latin word, which means incarnate, or to be made into the flesh. And last week, one of the things that we really tried to focus on uh, were two aspects of the incarnation, or the doctrine, or the teaching of the incarnation, meaning that Jesus came into this world. We, we chose to look at this, obviously, for obvious reasons. It's Christmas time, and we want to focus on Jesus, and we really want to try to focus in and understand what this means, why this is significant for us. Uh, we looked last week at how this was a historical event. We also looked at this in terms of kind of its doctrine, why it's significant, why it's important. And one of the things that we reserved for this week, more so, was sort of the application of this, or how does this affect our lives? So today... We're going to take a look at the teaching or the idea of Jesus coming to this world. We call it Christmas, obviously here in the West. Or if you want to get biblical or kind of theological on it, we just call it the incarnation. God becomes a man. So we're going to continue looking at that today. Things are going to be a little bit shorter, again, because we do have uh, children in here. We're trying to be mindful of that as well. So I'm not going to preach for an hour like I normally do and yell at you for an hour. Uh, so next week, we'll get back into doing that, and uh, yeah, that'll be fun, but this week, we get one more break, and, uh, and then next week, we'll lay it all on the line. All right, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get back to work, taking a look at this concept of the incarnation, but in particular today, looking at how this affects us, how this impacts us. Today is really going to be mainly practical. How does God coming into our world affect us? So I'm going to pray, then we'll get to to work on this really great theme that's found in the New Testament, and we'll see what God wants to say to us. So Father, right now we ask you that you would help us to understand how significant, how important this concept was to early Christians, how important this concept is to us today, living in this world, trying to make things work in this world, trying to understand the way things should be in this world, and how things really aren't, but Lord, the way that you want to change things. So God, I ask you right now that you'd help us to uh, take your word and to apply it to our lives, to bring transformation to us, to the way that we think, to the way that we act. Uh, Lord, so we just commit this time in your hands. Be glorified in everything we do. And Lord, I also want to pray. Anybody here that is uh, physically sick, people that are going through difficult times right now in this season feeling just not good, I pray that you bring healing to their bodies, in particular my wife and my daughter. Pray that you would heal them and touch their bodies, anybody else, Lord, in this church, family, anybody else sort of in the extended family beyond this church, Lord, just bring healing to them, we ask. Be glorified in our lives, and uh, we just, we thank you for your many blessings that you've given to us through your son, Jesus. We ask all these things in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do, 
I mentioned already that we're basically looking at this sort of uh, from a very practical level. So if you want to look at it this way, in short, today's all going to be about application, applying this big theme or this doctrine of the incarnation, Jesus coming into this world. And here I want to try, try to explain to you a little bit how this sort of worked in the early church. Basically, the early Christians, they were affected. They were just a group of people that, for the most part, spawned out of Judaism. They were sort of a Jewish sect, a group of people that were, for the most part, Jews. But what had happened was they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus sort of fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming king that will one day come, that he was a suffering servant, that he was the king in the lineage of David. They believed all these things. And so what had happened was in the years following Jesus' death, um, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven, what you had was sort of this collection of believers really trying to make sense of the Old Testament prophecies. They're really trying to understand, like, what just happened? So you can imagine when they gather together, they would, they would not have New Testament Bibles like we had. They would have Old Testament scriptures. And what they would do is they would talk about how the Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in Christ. But what they would continue to do would sort of ask questions like this. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus came? What does it mean that Jesus died? What does it mean that Jesus rose again from the dead? And so that question is sort of pregnant with lots of application. In other words, they wanted to understand if Jesus comes into our world, if Jesus enters into our life, what does that mean for us? How does it change us? How does it transform culture? What does that mean for the world in which we live? What does that mean for the world to come? Those are the questions that these guys wrestled with. And so Paul the Apostle, uh, he was a Jew that was learned and studied up in sort of pharisaical Judaism, meaning he was a rabbi. Paul was very well versed in the Old Testament law. So all of these scriptures would have been very familiar with Paul. Paul was a genius in his day. So Paul would have taken, he was was in in many ways sort of like a lawyer. He understood legal terms very well. He understood how the law of God worked. He understood all these things very well. He was very educated, very astute, very well-known man, not only in uh, Jewish literature, but also in Greek and Roman literature. Paul was probably trilingual, meaning he spoke Greek, Aramaic, as well as um, uh, Hebrew. Uh, that, was, that was Paul's world in which he lived in. So Paul was a very well-known guy in his day, so he would have studied these things. So one of the things that you see in Paul's writings, uh, we call these epistles, Paul would have written all sorts of ways trying to bring into practical terms the implications of God coming into our world. Again, trying to answer those questions. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus rose again from the dead? How does that affect us? So these are questions that they all wrestled with. And they wrote down. Paul wrote these things down. So what I want to do today is we look at this. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can look at. But in practical terms, sort of kind of dovetailing what we started last week, I want to just get very practical and try to answer some of those questions. What does it mean that Jesus came into this world? How does it impact us? How does it affect us? How does it change the way that we think? How does that news actually um, transform the way that we observe the world around us. These are the questions they wrestled with. 
with, and these are the uh, answers that Paul the Apostle, many of the New Testament writers basically came back and had written down under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit of God. So with that, I want to basically look at least four of these things. I mean, there's a lot of them that we can look at, and the New Testament is filled with them, but I want to look at least four particular areas in the New Testament that Paul, some of the other New Testament writers talk about, um, trying to make sense of the incarnation. So it goes something like this. If indeed, uh, as we looked at last week, historically, God entered into this world, and if indeed, in terms of a theological standing, that this was not just a man who became God, and this was not just God who laid aside all his godness, but if indeed, from a theological perspective, that Jesus was the God-man. He was God, and he was man, the way the New Testament teaches. What does that mean for us? How did it transform us? How do we think differently because of that? Those are the things that we're going to try to look at and answer in terms of a very practical way. So with that, we're going to take a look at basically four things. There's a lot of them, like I said. We can spend a lot of time on here, but I'm not going to do that because um, I love you parents. You guys already put up with a lot, and uh, I'm not going to preach for too long. So <clears throat> we're going to basically look at at least four ways in which <clears throat> these things have transformed the way that Christians have thought. One is on a social uh, type of relational type of a sense. The other is in respect to the sense of mission or the sense of purpose, why we're here, why we do what we do, how we live, how we conceive, how we think of life around us. The third way we're going to take a look at is in terms of stewardship and generosity. And the fourth and final one is how we worship, the way that we worship, what we worship. So the first of which we're going to take a look at is socially and relationally. How Jesus coming into this world, how does it affect how does it transform the way that we interface with society around us? Does it affect us? Does it change us? And interestingly enough, what you'll find in the New Testament, the New Testament actually is full, very rich soil with all sorts of uh, practical ways of understanding that if we really truly understand that God stepped into our world, it changes the way that we interface with society around us with other people, with other relationships. So I want you guys to turn real quick. We got lots of verses we're gonna look at, most of which are gonna be up on the screen, but because I love you guys, I want you to get too lazy, I'm gonna ask you guys to turn there. So turn real quick to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, if you don't have a Bible, we have them in the back. It's on that uh, little shelf back there. Feel free to grab one. If you don't own one, please keep it. We want you to have a Bible. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of a passage. This is uh, in Paul the Apostle, wrote a book called, uh, or letter to the Philippians. Uh, Philippi was an ancient city. There's a church in the city of Philippi. And Paul writes to these Christians living there. And there's this little passage that most times I think we just overlook. We don't even read it. But here's, here's, here's what it says. Uh, Philippians 4 verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm. Thus says the Lord, my beloved. And then he says, verse 2. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, so this kind of reads like a, like a regular letter. And here's the way Paul closes this letter. It's almost like the last thing that's on Paul's mind, although I think it's probably preeminent on Paul's mind throughout the entire letter. Paul's basically writing to this group of people. He's like, look, there's two women among you that are constantly bickering back and forth. Tell them to stop. Tell them to get along. 
right? I mean, most of us, we read this, we don't even know that this verse is there. I love this. This is one of the reasons why I'm convinced the Bible's real, all right? I mean, if the Bible was not real, you wouldn't, like, put these little, like, family quarrels in there. You know what I'm saying? Paul writes, and he's like, look, tell these two girls that are in a calf fight to stop hissing at each other. Tell them to grow up. Tell them to be nice. Tell them to stop arguing. So whatever, most scholars believe that whatever was happening where these two women were not in agreement with each other. They're fighting with each other. And this is just a church, church family. And within the church family, two women that just didn't like each other. They had issues with each other. We don't have any clue what those issues were, but probably I can't imagine they couldn't be that far off different than the type of issues that we have with each other periodically. But what Paul's trying to say is this. You guys just get along. And he also urges those others that are within that church to help them to get along. Notice that? So now, in other words, when we, in a body of Christ, when we've got little family quarrels, little issues, uh, and this could actually go for marriage issues. If, if we know people in this body, husband and wife people that are going through difficult times, maybe even on the verge of divorce, personally, it's our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to try as best as we can to bring peace, to help, to urge towards peaceful agreements. All right, if somebody owns a business and he's got an issue with an employee and he's about ready to fire this guy, I think it's the body of Christ's responsibility to come in and say, let's try to help work towards peaceful goals, peaceful ends. The gospel actually, believe it or not, affects the way that we live socially in terms of relationships with other people with the rest of society. And in this particular case, why I think this is so significant, because Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, one of the most profoundly eloquent descriptions of what God did through Jesus. And there's no question in my mind that when Paul wrote this, by the time he got to verse you know, two and three of chapter four, and he's basically writing this exhortation to these two women to stop fighting, Paul has already had in his mind very clearly all of the contents of verse uh, or of chapter 2. Let me read you what chapter 2 says. Here's what he goes on. I think it's about verse 5. He says this. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, Becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him. I think the point that Paul is trying to make is this. Is that the only way that these two female women, these two women in the church who are fighting with each other are ever going to get over this. Is if they learn to understand the mindset that Paul talked about in chapter 2, which has everything to do with Jesus coming into this world. Here's what Paul says. The only way... That the two of these women are ever going to make amends with each other is if they both realize Jesus humbled himself, laid aside his right to be right, and put aside all of these things in order to be a servant, to humble himself, to love. And that sometimes means to even be put into a position where you are attacked, where you are wronged, even though you did no wrong. Is this making sense? And what Paul's trying to do, this whole concept, this whole theme is interwoven into this interracial or, or an interrelational type of situation that's going on here. 
that sort of climaxes in you two women stop fighting. That's what he's trying to think of. That's, what, that's literally what Paul's trying to say. So for us, in a practical level, if we know people in our lives that we do not have good relationships with, I think if you look at yourself and analyze those scenarios, oftentimes one of the things you'll find is somebody, if not both, are literally standing under demand saying, I demand to be right, I demand to be heard, I demand to be listened to. And here's what Paul's saying. Jesus had all the right to be right, all the reason to be listened to, but he laid that aside. And he humbled himself, even though he was king of all things, even though he created all things, he subjected himself to being a servant. You guys, when we understand what God did for us through Christ, entering into this world, this doctrine, this teaching of the incarnation, God entering into our world, that actually helps us to step back from certain things and say, you know what's more important than the fact of me being right is people, is relationships. And what Paul makes his appeal to is he says, look at the incarnation. Look at what Jesus did by coming into this world. That's how he's trying to apply this concept. I want you to look at one more verse. Uh, John chapter 14. One of the most amazing verses, I think, in Jesus' ministry. John chapter 14, verse 14, he says this. If then, if I then, your Lord and your teacher. So what had happened, kind of paint the picture real quick. Uh, it's the night before Jesus is going to be betrayed and murdered. All right, he willingly subjects himself to being betrayed. He hangs out with his disciples, and in this upper room, uh, Jesus takes off, of, takes off his regular gown and uh, kind of clothes himself in sort of the, the garments of a servant. And he begins to wash the feet of his own disciples. Now, you've got to imagine this. Back in those days, they didn't have paved roads for the most part. Everything was muddy. Everybody wore sandals. You can imagine feet were just dirty, janky feet, all right? And they smelled. It was horrible. And so whose job was it to typically wash the feet? I mean, you didn't want people coming in your house with nasty, dirty, smelly feet. It was normally the servant, the person who was a slave. Here's what Jesus does. He takes off his regular gown, clothes himself into regular uh, clothes of a servant, and he begins to wash himself, the disciples' feet. Jesus himself, the king, washes the feet of his own disciples. Everybody's freaking out. I mean, Peter's is like, no way, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus basically rebukes him. He's like, look, you better let me wash your feet, otherwise you won't have anything to do with me. Because the point is this, is that this, what Jesus is doing is he's acting out, I think, in a very visible, tangible form, what took place by him stepping out from his throne into this world, into a manger, the incarnation. And here's what he's doing. Jesus himself is applying the concept of the incarnation. Here's what he says. If I then, verse 14... Your Lord and teacher, if I've washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example so that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you then if you do them. The point that Jesus is making is this. If I'm your master and I have humbled myself to wash your feet to serve you, then you also, if you are my disciple, in other words, put it this way, if you call yourself a Christian and you 
refuse to be a servant, if you refuse to humble yourself, if you refuse to give up your right to be right, you're actually giving evidence of the fact that either A, you're not a Christian, or B, you just don't understand the incarnation. Does that make sense? You just don't quite understand it. You're not getting it. That's what Jesus is trying to say. I've laid aside my rights. I am king over all things, but I've laid this aside for a period of time to enter into this world to be a servant. The lowliest of all servants, the one who actually washes people's nasty feet. That's what Jesus is saying. Therefore, you guys do the same thing. Lay aside the rights that oftentimes we have to be right. That's what Jesus is trying to say. So it affects us in terms of social relationship ways. The second thing that we're going to take a look at is in terms of the sense of mission and purpose. John chapter 20, verse 19 is where we're going to look next. John chapter 20, verse 19. Why don't you turn to real fast? John chapter 20, he goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 20. Verse 19 says this. He says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked, and the disciples were there for fear of the Jews, because Jesus stood there among them, and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. And Jesus then said to them, peace be with you, as the Father sent me, even so am I now sending you. Then it says that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to notice here is what transpires or what takes place in this particular setting has everything to do with incarnation, has everything to do with the body, the human body, the flesh, if you would. Jesus walks into their midst. Now remember, Jesus had just died. Uh, he was brutally murdered, but then he rose again from the dead. And this is kind of their moment of discovery of all this. And so Jesus comes into the room, and some of them are a little bit tripping out. They're like, is it a phantom? Is it a ghost? What is it? And Jesus is like, no, it's me. It's my body. Feel my body. Um, and he's basically saying, look, I, I am in Incarnate. I'm in the flesh. That's who I am. So again, in applying this and trying to understand this, Jesus then takes his concept, I'm in the flesh. I'm here with you. He then goes further to say, in the same way that the Father sent me, I'm also going to send you. So what I want you to catch is this. Jesus basically gives them a sense of mission. He gives them a sense of mission. Do you know that the majority of people in this world just have no clue what they're really doing? I think most people, in fact, most people, I talk to people all the time that end up going to Cal Poly. I'm like, what are you going to do with your life? They're like, I have no clue. Like, what are you doing at school? I don't really know. I'm just trying to get my general education done and have no idea what I'm going to do after that. And the funny thing is that sometimes people then, after school, they get married and just try to take the first job that comes their way. And you're like, what are you doing with your life? They're like, I don't really know. I'm just taking whatever comes in front of me. What I find oftentimes is most people have this very loose sense of mission, loose sense of purpose in their life. They don't really know what exactly their life's purpose is all about. But here's what I want to try to communicate in terms of putting it in the way in which Jesus puts it. Jesus basically says this to his disciples. Guys, I'm going away. But I'm going to breathe on you, which is significant, or speaking of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. He says, but in the same way that, that the Father, the Father sent me, so I'm going to send you, go into this world to be disciples, communicating other people about myself. So here's kind of an equation. The Father sends the Son. Jesus sends his disciples. 
So the question really is this. It's not, am I called to be a missionary? That's not the question. If you're a Christian, if you are a disciple, you are a missionary. You, you gotta catch this. You have to catch this. If you don't catch this, then you're gonna be lost. The question is not, are you a missionary? The question is, are you a good missionary? That's the question. Are you a good missionary? You're either living with a sense of mission in your life or you're not living with a sense of mission in your life. Here's what I mean by this. Because to be really frank with you, I know this gets, this gets a little confusing because I just talked about, you know, a few minutes ago about this missionary couple, family who's coming back from Ukraine, they're missionary. And if you think missionary along those same lines, you're like, Ukraine? I don't know if I can live there. I'm not talking about moving to another country. I'm not talking about selling all your good and going out to Africa. I'm talking about living with purpose on mission in this life for God, for the glory of God. That means if you are a barber, you cut hair for the glory of God. All right, that means if you sell insurance, you sell insurance for the glory of God. You do it in a way that makes God look really good. If you're a mom, you change those diapers, those dirty, nasty diapers as best as you can for the glory of God, knowing that you have the life of a human soul at your fingertips to mold and shape. How are you shaping them? Is this making sense? If you're a student, you are a student on mission, living with the purpose of doing everything for the glory of God. I, I can keep going here. Do I need to? You guys following this? My point is this, is that all of us, if we claim to be followers of Christ, we are called to be missionaries. We are either good missionaries or lousy missionaries. Okay? If we understand what Jesus is trying to say here. In all of this, all of this is connected to the incarnation. All of this. Jesus' whole point, I came from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. But right now I'm shipping you guys out. You guys are the reserves, you're going out. You're on mission. In the same way the Father sent me, so I'm gonna send you out into this world on mission with purpose to go preach, to proclaim, to sculpt, to shape, to make, to glorify God, to fulfill the command of God, which is to speak, communicate, to create gospel-centered community, gospel-centered lives in the children you lead, in the jobs that God's called you to, whatever it is. Not everybody's gonna call, be called to go to Ukraine or pastor church or lead children's ministry. Some of you are gonna be called to sell produce. Some of you are gonna just be called to cut hair for a living. Some of you are just gonna be called to design buildings. All for the glory of God. We need people living with a clear sense of purpose for what God's created you to do. Listen to this very last verse I'm gonna read you in terms of this. In John chapter 17, so go back real quick. John chapter 17, verse three. We're almost done here. John 17, verse three. Listen to how this sort of all takes shape. Jesus is actually praying. This is what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying now. Listen to what he says. He says, uh, and this is eternal life, that they would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So notice the word, sent. God sent the Son. Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, he's like, hey, eternal life is about them knowing me and knowing you because I was sent from you. So you get the picture. Jesus is on a mission. Verse four, he says, I've glorified you on earth and I have accomplished the work which you've given me. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's speaking in terms of mission, in terms of purpose. He's like, I've done my job. It's all done. I did everything perfectly 
according to plan, just like he said. And here's how he finishes up this little section here. He says in verse five, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I want you to catch this. We looked at this more last week, we pressed more into this last week. But the issue of the incarnation is Jesus was always in the presence of the glory of the Father throughout all eternity. And for 33 years, Jesus entered our world to be on mission, to live on mission, because the Father sent him. And he did a great job. Everything he sent out to do, he accomplished. Some of you are the effects of that. You're saved, you know Jesus, you're gonna be with him forever. You are the direct result of Jesus' faithful mission. And Jesus went back to the Father. He says, I'm gonna go back to the glory that I had with you before I came into this world, before the mission started. Can't wait, it's basically what Jesus is saying. So the point that he's saying is this, is that you, all of you, if you believe me, if you follow me, if you love me, you will be on mission just like I was on mission. So the question is again, not are we missionaries? Question really is, are we good missionaries? Or bad missionaries? Sort of lost focus, lost sight of what we're called to do. Third thing is this, stewardship and generosity. I love this because again, Paul is sort of trying to latch down on some big concepts. So take a look at this. Uh, turn real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's writing to this church in a city called Corinth. And uh, basically what he's trying to say is uh, this group of people uh, in, in uh, Jerusalem, they needed some uh, monetary aid, some help, some finances, some money. And uh, so he's out trying to uh, connect with a lot of the Gentile churches that are in this region of Corinth. And he's like, look, you guys, you know, gave a you know, big charitable donation at one point, and it was great. People back in Jerusalem were stoked. Uh, they might need some more money because they're suffering right now. And so Paul writes to these people, but I want you to listen to how Paul weaves uh, the concept of the incarnation. In other words, Jesus coming into this world, into the text. In other words, how the fact or the doctrine or the teaching of Jesus coming into this world affects or changes not only the way that we relate with people on a social relational level, not only the way that we view life in terms of purpose and mission, but also how we view our goods and how we're generous with those goods. Here's what he says. Second uh, Corinthians chapter eight, um, he says this. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. In verse nine, he goes on to say, um, he says, for you know the grace of your Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in his poverty that you might become rich. And here's his whole point. He's like, he calls to mind the fact that Jesus left his throne in glory, his riches in glory, to step into this world in poverty. For what purpose? So that those who are impoverished could be made rich in glory. They can be brought back. Again, he makes this appeal to the incarnation, Jesus coming into this world, and he sort of fine-tunes it in terms of how we view what we have, in terms of generosity. And he basically goes on to say this. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Uh, in verse 10, he says, and this is a matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you. He says, who a year ago started not only to give to this work, but also desire to do it. So now you finish doing this as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And he says, for in the readiness there, he says it's, it's, it's acceptable according to what 
you have, what each person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and that you be burdened. And then he says, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so their abundance may supply your need. And there may be fairness, as it is written. Then he quotes this Old Testament passage, actually taken out of the Exodus, uh, in, re- in reference to the manna. Here's what he says. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And his point is that, back in the wilderness, God basically told the children of Israel on Friday night, go gather as much as you can, because on Saturday I want you guys to gather. It's the first day of the week, don't gather anything. And uh, so his point that I think he's trying to make is this, is that as you did your work, there were those that gathered very little. There were those that gathered a lot. But at the end of the day, the entire family of the people of Israel were benefited from this manna that God himself gave, and they just gathered it and stewarded it. Does that make sense? So here's what he's saying. God, who is good, loving, generous, and kind, because he loves you, sent his son into this world so that you who are poor can become rich, so that you can have what you didn't have. And his whole point is this, is that by understanding what God did through the incarnation, this affects the way that we view what we have. When we understand Christ came and was very generous in what he gave of everything, we view our lives in the same way. Everything that we have is a gift from God to be stewarded. How do we view what we have? See, if we view our lives as being centered around ourselves, if we take more of an enlightenment view of our world around us, meaning that we are sort of the center of our existence, and existence is defined by us in terms of an existential type of perspective, then we will view ourselves as being the center of our universe. Meaning we do everything for ourselves in mind. But if we live with an understanding of the incarnation that Jesus came into this world to help others, then we too will also view everything we have in this life as a means, as an opportunity to help other people. So it does affect the way that we view what we have. This is not just money, this is our goods, this is our house, this is our car, this is everything that we have, is a gift from our generous God. So therefore, Christians really should be the most generous of all people. The early Christians were. The early Christians, when they gathered together and they realized somebody was without need or somebody with, was without uh, help and they had need, the early Christians got together and said, you know what, we're gonna do everything we can to help you. Even if that means I sell my television. Even if that means I sell a portion of land. Because one of my brothers, one of my sisters is in need and I'm gonna help them. That's how Christians could view their lives. How Christians could radically live. Can you imagine, can you imagine if the Christian community here in Slow started living in a radical way like that, how would that impact and affect and change the world around us? I mean, just think about it. I mean, I'm not saying it's gonna happen. I mean, I know how we are with our wallets, and I know how we are with our stuff, right? I'm just saying, just think for a moment. Can you imagine what that would be like if every single person in this room, no matter what type of circumstances you're going through, if you're a single mom, your dad trying to make things work, and you don't have money to buy your kids' shoes, can you imagine if the Christian community here says, you know what? I notice your kids' shoes are all messed up. I'm going to buy you some new ones. I notice you don't have any groceries. I'm going to take you to the store. I notice you couldn't pay your rent. I'm going to help you out. I notice you didn't have anybody to live with. You're living in your car. How about you live with me? Can you imagine that? 
we begin to view ourselves in a way, the way Jesus viewed us, by laying aside his riches in order to help others to gain. Last one is this. This also practically affects the way that we worship. I wanna wrap it up here. Take a look at Revelation chapter five. We're gonna read through this quickly. Revelation chapter five. The concept of the incarnation affects, will affect the way that we worship. I've said this many times before. The reality is this. We all worship. All of us are worshipers. All of us. They're like, uh, I'm not even religious. We all worship. Some of us just worship our jobs. Some of us worship money. Some of us worship our intellect. Some of us just simply, well, some of us just simply worship ourselves. We're prideful. We're arrogant. We look at other people with despite. But the reality is we all worship. Worship really is a matter of what us giving ourselves, giving ourselves our time, our energy, our money, whatever it is that we have, to that which we deem or value the most. We're all worshipers, all of us. The question is, what are we worshiping? That's the real question again. So the way that we understand the incarnation does affect who we worship and how we worship him and the intensity by which we worship him. Let me give an example of this. I wanna read you a passage out of the book of Revelation chapter five, which we're actually gonna be getting into the next few weeks. Revelation five says this, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So I want you to look at this second, this phrase, lamb. The word lamb would immediately sort of trigger this concept of sacrifice in the minds of the people. But it's not just any lamb, it's a dead lamb. It's a lamb that was slain. It's got actual wounds on it. So this lamb, whatever this lamb is, this sacrificial element uh, that's there in the center of the throne has actually been slain. Uh, most scholars agree, which I'm with them as well, that this is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is on the throne in a human body. And on his human body are these wounds. The very wounds, no doubt, that occurred on the cross. Okay, you, you gotta catch this. That on the throne of God, right now, today, is a man. Jesus, the one and true God, one true God, is in the body of a man, a resurrected body, but a body that no doubt you can tell was slain. That's why John says this. And listen to what it says. And then they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. So again, reference to his death. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on earth. The concept of earth, again, gives reference to the fact of physical, physicality. Don't think of heaven as this ethereal place you're going to go to one day. That's bad theology. Okay? Heaven will one day come to this earth. We will have in the eternal state physical bodies. It's called resurrected bodies. We will have bodies that will be adapted to live forever on a planet that is perfected. And heaven and earth will become one. Does that make sense? Someone's cell phone is going off. But does that all make sense, you guys? That's what will one day happen. And to give evidence of that on the throne of God is a man in a physical body bearing the very wounds. And those wounds forever will seem to be this indicator what happened on this broken earth, on this defiled earth, in terms of helping, saving, restoring the redeemed. So for all eternity, people will have this understanding that God 
became a man, was incarnate to become flesh, human flesh, for the purpose of saving. And that will be this fuel, this impetus, this fire that will constantly, forever, all eternity, fuel our worship. Let me give you one other example. Take a look at the next verse, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb. Again, there's the indication. I think he keeps going back to this metaphor of lamb because the picture is that whatever there is on the throne, Jesus, who's on the throne, has this forever type indicator in his own flesh that he died, that he was a sacrifice, that he died in the place of somebody, something, someone. And it says, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, Verse 10, it says, and they were crying out with a loud voice, saying, salvation belongs to our God, to him who sits on a throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God. What I want you to see is this, is that the very fact of the incarnation, the way that the New Testament writers had understood this, it will be the very fuel for all eternity of our worship. We will forever be reminded that God became a man, lived as a man to demonstrate great depth of love for us. That's what the incarnation speaks of. That's how it will fuel the worship. I want to read you one last thing to finish up here and I'm done. Is I, I went to a, 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 a service on Christmas Eve. It was great. Um, the pastor mentioned this story. I actually went home. I read the story. Radical story. Great story. I'm going to read this little bit of a story to you guys. It's just very short. And it's actually written by this gal. Um, I'm going to hack her name, but I'm going to attempt it anyhow, just so I can. Her name is Sarah uh, Thabarge. And uh, she wrote in this magazine called... Um, um, I don't even know what the name of the magazine was. She's got her own blog. You can look her name up. If you want to know who it is, you can ask me afterwards. But she basically was brought up in a Christian home. She's around 28, 29 years old now. And uh, when she had uh, gone away to college, she kind of walked away from God, and she went to go get her doctor's degree, and she was involved in medicine and all that. And she basically talks about back around 2006, she ends up coming home to go visit her family. When she was around 23, 24, somewhere around there, she actually was diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer. So she talks about how she was just in this depths of depravity, depths of despair, depths of this depression. And so in 2006, when she comes home to visit mom and dad, mom and dad immediately pick her up from the airport. They take her to a church service, and they basically spend, you know, the next couple of hours at this church service. Church service. And the very last song that they sang at this church service was a familiar tune. It goes like this. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing over the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing the joys strain. And then it, this one little refrain, glorious in excelsis Deo. And here's what she says. She says, in excelsis Deo, I knew from Sunday school days was a phrase in Latin that meant God in the highest. It says, it reminded me of another Latin phrase, in extremis. I had learned in my medical training that described a patient who was struggling to breathe as they died. In extremis is translated in the furthest reaches or at the point of death. She goes on to basically say, she says, as I listened to people around me sing carols, I thought, God, I don't... I don't want you to be in the highest. I need you to be with me now in the lowest. 
And basically she goes on throughout the remainder of this uh, article, kind of everything that's in between, talking about her battle with cancer. One of her best friends ends up getting diagnosed with cancer and ends up dying. And she's just kind of this, this, this pit of despair. And she kind of summarizes everything when she comes to this very last uh, statement in her story. She says this, during my chemo sessions, I listened to carols on my iPod and I tried to figure out the mystery of Christmas. And I thought, how could the incarnation and our pain coexist? Didn't one negate the other? Then she said, finally it occurred to me that maybe our pain didn't disprove the message of the incarnation. Maybe, rather, instead, it validated the need for it. If the world wasn't so dark, if we weren't given to despair, if we weren't terrified of death, why would we need a savior? And somehow, in the midst of all the loss, I was found. She said, God did not lift me to the highest. Instead, he descended to me in the lowest. Maybe the real meaning of the incarnation is not in excelsis Deo. Our hope is not that we find God in our joy, but rather that he finds us in our pain. Instead, gloria in extremis Deo. That will be the impetus forever that will fuel our worship. Beginning now to understand in applying the doctrine, the teaching of the incarnation, God in the flesh is not God coming to us in our greatest moments, but it's God coming to us in our moments of great depravity, discouragement, depression, and lifting us up. That's what the incarnation speaks of. That's why I believe throughout all eternity, on the throne of God is a lamb that's been slain, always to remind us of the great depths that he had journeyed on mission to seek and save the lost. We're gonna worship. We're gonna sing to God right now. We're gonna just have an opportunity to give back to God, to give our tithes, our offerings. If you're one of our guests, keep your money. This is a way for us who love Jesus, who are part of this church and wanna give back to God, a way for us to be generous and give back to God. If you don't know Jesus, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to know the depths to which God has gone to save you. The depths to which God has gone to redeem you, to bring you back. We're gonna worship, we're gonna sing. Evan's gonna come on up and lead us into some songs of worship. And uh, as we respond, I want for us just to consider how great our God is and worship him, to thank him for stepping into our world, taking upon the form of a human being, a servant, serving us. Didn't need to, he laid aside his rights, laid aside certain privileges for the purpose of serving us for salvation, to save us. I'm gonna pray, we'll sing, we'll give joyfully, and we'll dismiss you guys. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done in stepping into our world. We now, Lord, uh, wanna give back to you our praise and our love and our worship. God, I ask right now that if there's any here right now that doesn't know you, that they don't, don't have a relationship with you, anybody at all, God, that you would just find them right where they're at. We thank you that you have come to us. You did not expect us to come to you. So Father, we pray right now that as we give our songs back to you, as we seek you through praying, as we give joyfully our gifts, God, we just wanna tell you that we love you, and that's why we do what we do.